have no hands but yours to tend my sheep. No handkerchief but yours to dry the eyes of those who weep. I have no arms but yours with which to hold the ones grown weary from the struggle and weak from growing Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service. Above all, I'll seek out light, love, and helping hands being shared between our many neighbors on this planet, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. I have no way to open people's eyes Except that you will show them how to trust the inner My guest today on Spirit in Action is Paul Kaljian. Paul is the living product of a rainbow of cultural and religious heritages, Finnish and Armenian, diverse religious groups, all combining to create a person who has a passion for creating personal international connection. He's a Mennonite, a geography professor at University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire, and a board member of the Refuser Solidarity Network, a group that seeks to support Israeli refuseniks and inform the world about this element of the Israeli peace movement. Paul, I'm very pleased to have you here today on Spirit in Action. I'm very pleased to be here. When I was first talking with you about having you on the show, I knew I wanted to have you on the show, but I wasn't quite sure what to say your form of activism is. And I guess I've decided in hindsight to say that your activism is an activism of personal international connection, that starting from your very roots, you are an international mutt. I'm a mongrel. That's true. I'm going to start this off, instead of going right into like your work with the refuse snicks and so on, I'm going to start you off with your personal history, because I think it tells the story of what your work is, because you've lived it. So how about starting off with your parents? this parentage from around the world and how they got together. and Give me that in some form. 
Yeah, I'm a child of migrants. I was born in 1960. My parents were in Ann Arbor at the university there, and they ended up there because mom came to the University of Michigan from Finland to get her Ph.D. in linguistics. And she had grown up in Finland, but she was, in turn, the child of missionaries from Finland to Namibia. So she was actually born in Namibia, so had a Namibian connection. Her mother was Estonian, so she had an Estonian connection. So my mother spoke multiple languages, and she then came. She was interested in linguistics. She studied English especially. She knows English better than anybody else I know, the, the grammar and so on. In Ann Arbor, she met my father. My father is an Armenian. He was from southeastern Turkey, from a place called Gaziantep. His family then went through Syria. They lived there for a few years, ended up in Beirut. His older brothers and sisters put him through school. He got his engineering degree from the American University of Beirut, ended up at University of Manitoba in Winnipeg, got a master's degree there, went to Ann Arbor to work on his Ph.D. And so while my parents were there, Mom had intended to return back to Finland. But she met my dad, boy plus girl equals marriage and baby, and I came along and my parents then settled down in Ann Arbor. So what was the religious history of these? Because they come from very different religious places as well. Right. My mom grew up a Lutheran. My father grew up in what's called the Armenian Evangelical Church, which is the Protestant church in Anatolia. So they were both Protestants. They met in Ann Arbor, and at the university there, there was a chapel that was run by, organized by, the Christian Reformed Church. And the Christian Reformed Church is the Dutch Reformed tradition that came to the United States. My parents then ended up going to the Christian Reformed Church in Ann Arbor, became members of that church, and that's the church in which I grew up. And in addition, my parents spoke multiple languages. The only language they speak in common is English. I grew up speaking Finnish with my mother.
shows, depending on your linguistic talents, you may or may not have recognized that that was a Finnish Christmas song. It's called Hosiana, and it's sung by a group I can't pronounce the name of. looks like their name is Tapiola Yateshkulu Choir, a song reminiscent of Paul's childhood. You're listening to an interview with Paul Kaljian, Professor of Geography at UWO Claire, Mennonite activist with, among other things, the Refuser Solidarity Network. We also had many graduate students at our house all the time, so it was just constantly languages and ideas and sharing of belief systems. And so this was just became a very normal part of my upbringing. So I guess it was just foreordained by your parentage and by your home life that you become a professor in geography. Inevitable. Here's a little story. When I was growing up, my dad's an engineer, and so when I was in college, it came to the time where dad says, son, what are you going to major in? And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, English, dad. And dad looks at me and says, bad investment, son. If you want to study English, you're on your own. I think, ah, cripes. And so... I come back to Dad a little bit later, and I said, Dad, what about geology? Dad looks at the curriculum, and he says, okay, four semesters of math, two semesters of physics. Okay, son, geology. I said, well, geology and English. That's fine. So I was a double major, geology and English. I got a job afterwards with the Environmental Protection Agency where both of those disciplines were critical. And it was after that then that I said, I want to go back to school. What can I study? And that's where geography was just perfect, where geography invites a marriage of people, society, culture, with environment, nature, landscape, this kind of thing. So geography is just the perfect fit for me. Before we get into the kind of ways that you're activist with your geography, with your other work through Mennonites and your international concerns, I'd like you to recap your religious history, because you grew up in this church, but then you meet a wife, and then you've got that history. And I I thought this was so interesting because, again, it's like you're pulling the whole world together right in your relationships. So I grew up in the Christian Reformed Church. After I got my master's degree from the University of Michigan, I went to Washington, D.C., and there I found the Christian Reformed Church that I had been dreaming of. It was a, a CRC church in downtown D.C., I ended up living right next to the church in a predominantly middle-class black community. I was one of the only white people there. Attended church there, and over the course of time, I met my wife, who was introduced to us, by the way, by a Cambodian refugee. So we met, we got married. She was going to an inner-city Lutheran church, ELCA church, that had ministries to and with African Americans, a growing Latino population, in a sizable gay population. And so after we got married, both of us loved our churches that we didn't feel like we should draw one of us away to the other one's church. So we continued going to our own churches. In the end, we both became members of each other's churches. Well, after a while, I decided I wanted to get a Ph.D. in geography. And so the decision was that when we move from D.C., we're going to look for a church where we can then attend together as a family. So we went to Tucson, to the University of Arizona, and we started looking for churches. And we must have gone to 10, 15 different churches in search of just the right church. And then Meg said, well, you know, my grandmother's Mennonite. Why don't we check out the Mennonite church? And so we went to the Mennonite church, and 
lo and behold, this was this was what we were looking for, is this strong sense of community, welcoming strangers with open arms, a member of the Peace Church, you know, saying, you know what, there are other ways of resolving problems than in any kind of violent kinds of way or punitive kinds of ways. And the emphasis on community, on service, on an international perspective, all of these things came together for us. And ever since then, we've been Mennonites. One more piece on that is that there is not a Mennonite church right here in Eau Claire. And a lot of people probably don't understand the kind of wide range of Mennonites that are out there. Could you give a snapshot of that, Paul? I'd be happy to, to the degree that I know. And we've been Mennonites now for, it must be about 10, 11 years and I'm still learning, but just as a general sense, we are members of the Mennonite Church USA, which is brother and sister communities with the Mennonite Church of Canada. This is distinguished from what we generally call the Old Order Mennonites, which have some characteristics similar to what we associate with the Amish, you know, who have a community that may be a little bit more rural, that define themselves a little bit more by separating themselves from the world. The Mennonite Church USA, we don't do that. You would not know that we're any different from anybody else just seeing us walk down the street. When we when we moved here, we were looking for a Mennonite church because this was now such an important part of our growth, our Christian growth, and the nearest one we could find was in the Twin Cities. So we went there, and sure enough, we said, you know, this needs to continue to be a part of our life, to be a community like this. So we began driving 90 miles each way to church on Sundays to attend and become part of Emmanuel Mennonite in the Twin Cities. Wow, I'm tired just with all your travels in your ancestors and in yourself. But I think your work involves you in more and more travels. I tried to schedule this interview with you some months ago and know you're off to Turkey and you're off here and there and everywhere in the world. You work in the geography department here at UW-Eau Claire. What is your work? My work is a combination of teaching, of research, and then sort of broadly defined service, service to the community. I'm encouraged by the university to work out in the community in various different ways. I also have service to the university community itself, serving on committees and so on, and then service to my students. I'm a human geographer. As a human geographer, I'm interested in sort of cultures and people's relationship with landscape and place and environment and so on. The types of courses I end up teaching are introductory human geography courses where we explore different ideas and concepts related to population or the geography of agriculture and food or the geography of economics, you know, how cultures and languages and so on develop and what their relations are over space. Oftentimes people say, you know, what's a geographer anyway? Well, think of sort of an analogy to history. Historians look at changes in relationships over time. Geographers look at changes in relationships over space. And everything has a spatial component. Everything has connections over space, has histories over space, has movement over space, changes over space, different kinds of patterns. Why do things happen where they happen? That's a much bigger question than we're accustomed to exploring. So that's a little bit of what geographers do. Then my specific areas of interest, I'm interested in the Middle East. I do work in the Middle East, and ever since doing my Ph.D. dissertation about 10 years ago, in Turkey I've been going back and forth to Istanbul where I look at 
urban agriculture and urban food systems, how low-income people feed themselves, how these are changing. So I'm interested in the Middle East, and I'm interested in food and food systems, the relationship between where food is produced, where it's consumed, how it gets back and forth, how it's transformed, why do we eat what we eat, sort of whole host of questions. And can you give me some snapshots of your life as a teacher and how this relates to your spiritual quest, your spiritual drive, really, to connect people? Yeah, one of the local research projects that I've spent some time with, and I've had a a wonderful young student helping me, working with me on this, is we were curious about what Latino and Mexican migrants were doing working on local dairy farms. And so as we started pursuing this question and looking at migration into Wisconsin, we started finding out that there's some tensions also associated with this, the same kinds of things we see and read about happening across the country. And at a very local level, people were getting worked up and getting concerned about this whole question of immigration and legal versus illegal. And different camps were developing on how there should be no illegal immigrants and what's legal and what's illegal and many concerns. So the student and I started exploring these and saying, what are some of the causes and consequences of this? And as a result of some of our work, I've been asked to speak next week at a Wisconsin Academy of Arts and Sciences and Letters, a forum they're having on the future of farming in Wisconsin, the future of farming in rural life. And so I'm going to speak on, I I don't consider myself a migration expert, but as a geographer, we explore migration, why people migrate, what are the consequences of migration. And then in doing this, I hope that I can participate in the education of, in a sense, cultural change. Migration has been with us for a long time. You know, Paul, as part of our discussion earlier, when I said, tell me about your activism before we started recording, you told me that you don't think of yourself as an activist because you don't like to go out there with signs and go, hell no, we won't go, or something like that. But I think you are eager to produce a change in the world or to be part of making a change in the world. If you could send your students out with a different view, changed in some way, what would you name that change as being? Let me try to explain it this way. I want my students to go out with their eyes open. You know, just so that when they see things and experience things, that they ask questions, they see something, they can start saying, oh, if nothing else, they can say, oh, this is like that thing we learned about at school, or this is why it's like this, not to take things at face value, but to look at them and explore the meanings of things. Why do things take place the way they take place? Sometimes they're very good, and they should be and can be emulated. Other times, they make us feel uncomfortable. And don't just walk away from that feeling of discomfort, but say, can I do something? Can I use my position? Can I use my understanding to help make this thing better? For example, I show them a video. It's called Life and Debt in Jamaica. And it shows about what is going on in the background to all this big tourist trade. And it's uncomfortable what's taking place in Jamaica. And some students say, oh man, I wanted to go to Jamaica on my honeymoon, or I want to go on a vacation to Jamaica with my family. Should I go? I say, yes, go. But go with your eyes open. Recognize that these other things are taking place. And don't just say, you know, the world's happy for me, so it must be happy for everybody.
your job Do something different Disappear Do something different Disappear Think like a child Laugh at cocaine Never, ever, ever do it proper again Understand everyone crystal clear Rid yourself of fashion Remove yourself from fashion very well be asking yourself why was that song included it was called do something different by a group called brave combo paul told me that they're a psych polka band from texas i hope you appreciated their music and their message to do something different i think that's part of what paul is trying to teach his students to do you know i think that you're a very spiritually devoted person and yet you're working in the secular world here. Is it okay to be a spiritual person with spiritual drives, teaching, working, living here? Or is that a part you have to really kind of truncate to be an effective teacher here? Maybe this is another reason I'm a Mennonite, but one of the things that the Mennonites put a premium on is the separation of church and state. It's not difficult for me to work in a secular world, and maybe this is also the way I was raised with my parents, is that they were also Christians, very devout people, working in the context of public schools and public education. Students, in fact, in front of the class will ask me, what do you believe? And I say, you know what, I'm happy to discuss that with you in my office, but not here. I don't want it to look like I'm in any way trying to tell other people how to believe. Just like I don't want other people to tell my children how to believe. I don't want to be in the position of putting my worldview. I mean, I, I do want them to understand my worldview in general, where it's common to maybe all or virtually all belief systems. But where some of those systems are particular to my Christian faith, I feel very awkward about telling the students that's what I believe, at least in a public context. If they want to come to my office and talk to me about them, I'm happy to tell them what it is I believe and why. Because that then becomes a conversation that I think they're entitled to, to know. One thing that people will note if they get to know you, if they watch you in action, is that you are living out your faith. In Quaker circles, we have a phrase, let your life speak. And I think you're trying to do that. So the speech of your life, what is it saying? Which of your deep values is it speaking? You know, it's interesting because as a believer, I also sometimes think, oh man, what kind of example am I being? This is not the example. Sometimes I can get a little too indignant and somebody could really question, you know, oh, what kind of unpleasant person is he? I guess those things that I'd like to come out to emanate from the way I behave in public is as somebody who cares about our community and our world around us, who, you know, one of the things that, the, that I also appreciate about the Mennonites is that they love first, they serve first, and they ask questions later. And I know that some people can see that, you know, it becomes a little bit more of a, you know, an I'm okay, you're okay kind of approach to all worldviews. 
And I don't see it that way. I see the model of Jesus, for example. Jesus served first. He led with love and with peace and with a just approach, but he treated everybody as an individual. In a sense, Jesus was the first postmodernist. He would meet people on their own terms, at their level, and he would love them, address their needs. And only afterwards, then he'd say, this is what you should consider for the rest of your life as a way of being at peace within yourself and between yourself and God's creation. So to answer your question, that was long-winded. To answer your question, if something comes out from me, it's treating other people with the love and the respect that each one of us deserves. And the way it comes out, I think, for me is being interested in everything about culture, in people's music. You know, I ask my students, they have the little earphones in their ears walking down the hall. I say, what are you listening to? Because I'm curious about, you know, what can I learn from them? Because what you are doing is valuable to me. And so just constantly be interested in what other people are doing. My interviewees in Turkey, I go to them and they're just, you know, why is a professor from the United States interested in what I do? Because I'm interested in what you do. You know, so this is what I hope my students will do too, is say, you know, everybody has things that we can learn from. Paul, I want to move to some of the other areas of specific work that you do. Number one, you're descended by your father from the Armenian people. And there's been some news just lately in France about a law that was passed that made it illegal to deny that the slaughter of the Armenians happened by the Turks. And yet you've got kind of these Armenian roots, so maybe you should be in support of that, but I don't think you are. And in fact, you have been forging connections with Muslims and Turks. So tell me about what you're trying to live out there and what you're reaching for. Yeah, this is an interesting and possibly awkward position to be in, but it's also very consistent with what I believe. The Armenians were, and Armenians believe, and Armenian scholars point out that in the first decade and a half of the 20th century, as many as one and a half million Armenians were massacred and deported from eastern Anatolia by the Ottoman Turkish government. And the Armenians and many others, not just Armenian scholars, but many others call this the 20th century's first genocide. Well, modern-day Turkey has a very difficult time publicly acknowledging something like this, and they put it in terms of this was a civil war or this was putting down some Armenian separatists that were threatening the state, many different sort of explanations for this. And so this has led to sort of an ongoing rift, at least between official Turkish policy and then many others around the world, not just Armenians. For example, the Armenians uh, in the United States have the ear of many congressmen. So every few years, the Congress sort of starts preparing to debate official recognition of the Armenian genocide. France just began their official, or going beyond their official recognition of the genocide, to actually say that anybody who states that the genocide didn't take place will be breaking the law. So in other words, they're legislating the truth. From my work in Turkey, I feel uncomfortable with something like this, because my goal first is the truth. And there are many sort of very 
honorable Armenian scholars and Turkish scholars who are together working toward the truth. I read recently that Flannery O'Connor said, one of her quotes was, the truth shall make you odd. People who are exploring the truth in whatever levels are often considered odd. My goal is to work with my Turkish brothers and sisters, and I've had many opportunities to do this with my research going back and forth to Turkey with my professional associations. I'm a member of the Turkish Studies Association, and ultimately I'm interested in the truth more than in requiring people to believe in one particular way or another. So the Turkish state is probably afraid if they were to recognize officially the genocide that they would have to pay some sorts of reparations, maybe give land back, something like that. I think those kinds of things should not be on the table. What should be on the table is getting at the truth of historical events. What I've had the privilege of doing is working with Turks, working with Kurds, people from throughout Anatolia, and being given such incredible hospitality and opportunities for warm relationships that it's very difficult for me to support the position of maybe a few too many Armenians who just automatically, because of events almost a 100 years ago, who automatically hate the Turks. There's no place in my experience for that. Was there some shortage genetically? Weren't you supposed to have that hate passed on? It's like if you were born into the Hatfields and McCoys that you're supposed to hate the other clan. Is there some expectation that you would have those roots in your right in your genes? You know, it's interesting you say that because if you go to Southern California where there's a very large Armenian community, you might almost pick that up. But this is where my father's approach and perspective, I'm sure, had an influence on me. My father grew up never hating anybody, and he would always say, you never hate anybody. And so he never perpetuated that kind of sort of family lore that said you hate somebody. He told us about what happened in Anatolia around 1915. He told us about these things. He encouraged us to learn about these things. He said you never hate anybody. And this raises another interesting story. When I was in graduate school, before I had started my research in Turkey, I applied for and received a scholarship, a 100% scholarship to study intensive Turkish. And my Armenian cousins were always after me to learn Armenian. My father speaks Armenian. My father speaks Turkish because of his upbringing. So... I called up my dad when I got this scholarship, and, and I said, Dad. Because one of the things that Middle Easterners do is there are no individual decisions. A decision is always a family decision, even when you're older. You just you discuss it with your brothers, with your parents, and so on. So I called up Dad. I said, Dad, I got this scholarship to study Turkish. Um, what do you think? My dad's silent for a, for a few moments. And he responds, that was the language your grandfather spoke, which was his way of telling me, you have my blessing to study Turkish. And it has been nothing but a blessing ever since then because Dad and I now speak Turkish back and forth with each other. My Armenian cousins, whom I love very much and they love me very much, they also say to me, why do you, why do you learn Turkish? Why don't you learn Armenian? I said, you know what? This is just the way life goes. 
But you spent time over in Turkey, which has Muslims and non-Muslims too, I guess. What's your interaction with Islam, positive, negative? How do you see it? Because I think most people live with a myth that's propagated highest levels of our government. What is Islam like when you've met it? That's a great question, because when I've met it, what you find out is just like in this country, in most countries around the world, there's this sort of this state presentation of information often appropriately called propaganda. 
And then there's the human experience. And when I go to Turkey, here's an example from about 10 years ago. One of the things that Middle Easterners are, when you get to know them, they're very curious about what you do. They always know everything about each other. So one of my um, restaurant proprietor one time said, what did you do yesterday? I said, you know, I went to church. You went to church. What did you do in church? Oh, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Well, what do you mean? What did you do in church? Do you pray? I said, yeah, we, yeah, we prayed in church and we sing some songs. You prayed to God? Yeah. That's great. And now, now we went on to the rest of the conversation. You know, so this is what we had in common. Or in other cases, more recently, clearly people in Turkey are very concerned about what the United States is doing in the country next door to them in Iraq. They are very concerned about that. Just like many, many people here in the United States are very concerned about that. So the political, sometimes I could get accused of, you know, politically what our country is doing. But I also have people who really want to engage in discussions about religion. I've had people try and convert me. And sort of, I ultimately say, I tell you what, you be the best Muslim you can be, I'll be the best Christian I can be, I bet we get along. When you interact at this human and personal level, it becomes sort of something not to be afraid of. And if an American goes to Turkey, to the Middle East, you find out that the emphasis on community, on neighborhood, the respect to elders, the shamefulness uh, that would be associated with sticking the infirm elderly in old folks' homes just puts us to shame. In other words, there's this high, high premium placed on taking care of your family and your family members. And this is part of Islam. Islam is used to support this, but it's not just Middle Eastern Muslims, it's Middle Eastern Christians and Jews, you know, people from the Middle East. This culture puts a high premium on taking care of each other. Thank you. 
song was called In My Heart, which you may or may not have been able to pick up, is that it's a true cross-cultural expression of the Palestinian and Jewish people. That song is by a Jewish folk singer, David, or David Brosa, and it's also done by Palestinian Wissam Murad. So it's a real effort to touch the heart across the seemingly intractable barriers that divide the Palestinian and Israeli people. You're listening to an interview with Paul Kaljian. He's a professor in geography at UW-Eau Claire, and he's a board member of the Refuser Solidarity Network. You know, the other thing that I've come to the realization is there's more of an acceptance of death in Islam as if you die it's part of God's plan whereas in the United States we're so afraid of death we try and put death off what we interpret with a higher degree of comfort with death in the Middle East is they don't value life oh yes they value life in the Middle East but they're not afraid of death in the same way which is a powerful thing. They value life. You want to know how to have a feast. You want to know how to, um, say, have a wedding or interact with people. People are so generous to each other. Oh, they value life. Absolutely. Oh, you refer to my big fat Greek wedding. My wife and I saw that. We call it my big fat Armenian wedding because this is just like the Armenian side of my family is. 
Yeah, absolutely. But this, this is this intense involvement and appreciation for each other. And in Turkey, they have words like komşuhakke, which means the right of the neighbor. Simply by living next door to somebody else, you have rights. You can send your kids over there and just expect your kids to be babysat. You can walk to your next door neighbor and say, let's have tea. And you can expect your neighbor to sit down and have tea. In other words, to drop everything. And by the same token, you have to be willing to do those same things. Or another case, I walked up to somebody I'd never met, and from a distance he saw us coming. He was standing there peeling an apple. And then as we approached, he disappeared inside the house, and he came back and met us. Now he had three apples, and he gave my research assistant and I an apple. And we said, no, no, you don't have to do that. And then he said, oh, yes, I do. He says, it's the right of the eye. Gözhakke. You saw me eating this, and now it's your right. You know, this is powerful sense of the importance of human relationships. That's amazing stuff, just to be present with. And I experienced some of that, too, when I was in Africa. I'm amazed when you travel the world how provincial we are, how much we don't know about the rest of the world, and specifically the hospitality. So I just echo that 100%. I want to go to another area, which is perhaps the most touchy area of the world right now, and that's right around Israel and Palestine. And you've been involved with some work there or some work related to that area. I say it's touchy in part because people so easily assume that you're taking sides when really you're probably, as a Peace Church member, you're probably taking both sides and trying to lift up both. And tell me about your work related to the peace movement in Israel. And again, this is what drew me to start talking to you. Well, this was actually kind of funny. For my Middle Eastern class, I teach a geography of the Middle East here, and I was very sort of dissatisfied with teaching about the Arab-Israeli conflict. And I don't know what was really gnawing at me, but it was a sense that this can't be all there is to it. Israelis aren't monoliths. Palestinians aren't. There isn't just one sort of mono-Palestinian. But just like in all societies, there's different points of view, different people, different issues going on. So I must have Googled or something, you know, peace, Middle East, peace, Israel. However I came across it, I came across this site of Courage to Refuse. Maybe I read an article about this, these Courage to Refuse, this group of soldiers, reservists in the Israel Defense Forces. This Courage to Refuse group are soldiers who said, we will defend our country, we will stay in the military, but we will not fight in the occupied territories. We find that to be an oppressive, unjust occupation, so we won't do that. Oh, this is interesting. And up in the right-hand corner of the website, it said, click here to ask a refuser to come and speak to your community. So I, from here in Eau Claire, clicked on, yes, I'd like a refuser to come and speak. I said, can we get somebody to come and speak in Eau Claire? Well, this was intended for people within Israel who wanted a refuser to come and speak. But lo and behold, I got put in touch with a group called the Refuser Solidarity Network. And the Refuser Solidarity Network is a, a nonprofit organization in the United States that works with the refusers in Israel. In other words, supports them, gives them a voice here in North America, and then helps arrange some tours and so on. One thing led to another, and we had a refuser come here and speak on campus. And then since then, we've had a couple of other refusers and people with the peace movement in Israel come and speak here. Well, some things led to other things, and I was eventually asked to serve on the board of the Refuser Solidarity Network. And as a board member, I think I'm the only goy on the board. Goy meaning a non-Jew. 
Goimini and Nanju, that's right. But it has given me a great opportunity to work with the peace movement in Israel. But it's interesting because I'm working with people who are trying to create peace between Israelis and Palestinians, between Jews and Muslims. And to me, this was very similar, really parallel to my goals of creating peace between Armenians and Turks, between Christians and Muslims. I mean, to have this. And I know some of my Jewish brothers and sisters feel very uncomfortable with the work that I'm doing. And I try and make it very clear. I will stand at the front of a line protecting Jews and Jewishness, just as I will, I hope, in front of any other group that is being harmed or oppressed or treated unjustly. God have mercy on me if it's anything other than that. But in working with the Refuser Solidarity Network, I have been involved with this kind of touchy subject for some people. But what is also really beautiful about it is I then be able to return some of that to the classroom and say, you know what, there's a peace movement in Israel. We don't hear about that here in the United States. There are Jewish Israelis who will go and if a family's house has been demolished, for whatever reason, these Israeli Jews will go and rebuild their house. There are groups of Israeli Jews who will go and collect the olives that the Palestinian is unable to harvest. So this sharing of the work, almost of the burdens and the pain of each other, is another powerful example for all of us. Have you actually been over there, or have you had to do it all via the Internet? It's all by the Internet, and the board members are spread across the United States. We have board members on the East Coast. We have board members in Chicago and Washington State, and then I'm here in the Midwest. I've been invited numerous times and look forward to the day that I can go to Israel and meet some of my brothers and sisters who are involved in trying to create peace in that part of the world. I want to follow the circle back here and how this comes from your religion. You mentioned you'd stand on the front lines to protect the Jews and the Palestinians and whomever. You're in solidarity with them. But I think that you're a pacifist. So what does it mean that you would stand on the front lines? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, the pacifism is kind of a strange word to me. I don't like it, actually, because it somehow has some connotations of weakness or something. And so we say sort of nonviolence, because there's something that to stand with somebody else completely disarmed can sometimes require incredible amounts of strength. And I can probably say that I haven't been tested like I may someday be tested, and I haven't been tested like many other people who have been tested and done marvelous and brave things. I can't say I've really done anything brave in this kind of sense, you know, sort of standing on the front lines. But uh, let me put it this way. My prayer, my hope is that in constantly working toward peace, peaceful relations, toward truth, toward resolving tensions between different groups and perceived and real tensions. And then with God's blessing and the faith that I put in my God, if the day ever comes where I have the need or the opportunity to stand with whoever it is that is being treated unjustly, and even if it's threatening, that I will have the courage to do that.
it's easy for me to talk in my lush position. Whereas there are people in Israel, Jews, Palestinians, who are working very hard and they're paying for it with their lives. And I have never been in that position. And I can say, may God protect me from ever having to be in that position. But I, I also pray that if God puts me in that position, that I do what is honorable to God and to the human race. And just to be clear, is it your understanding of the Mennonite position that you would not, should not, could not raise your arm with a weapon to attack another, even in self-defense? That's the ideal that all Mennonites hold to, is saying that we do not even fight back. We don't fight to protect. Now, what the Mennonites end up trying to do is avoiding any kind of situation to begin with that would require that kind of response. In other words, if there's a situation that may lead to the need to protect violently, what can we do to defuse that in the first place so that we don't have that? Some people may have said, well, you Mennonites, if you're so smart, what would you do about Iraq? Well, that's a, sort of an awkward position to be in because I doubt that if a group of Mennonites got together, we would quite be in this kind of position we currently have with Iraq. We would have taken another approach from the very beginning and even before the beginning. And, you know, the big question comes up, what if your wife or your children were being threatened? And I say, you know, by God's mercy, that will never happen. But I don't know what tomorrow brings. Speaking of what's coming, you mentioned to me earlier today some prospects for Mennonites within the Eau Claire area. You said you've commuted basically each Sunday off to the Twin Cities to be part of a Mennonite group. Is there some hope for Mennonitism here in the Chippewa Valley? Yes. In addition to our old order Mennonite brothers and sisters, a family from Colfax and my family, we both commute to the Twin Cities for church. We um, have embarked on a project to start a small community church here or a satellite church here from our Twin Cities church. We're excited. We've approached the Shalom Synagogue about possibly using their synagogue on Sunday mornings for a place of worship. And so far it has been met favorably, and if we can work out something in which their needs are met and our needs are met, that may be a place in which we can worship. And should that not work out, then we'll find some other place to have a local Mennonite Church USA congregation here in town. So if anybody's interested in checking out sort of the Mennonite perspective, we're open to everybody. How do they find you? How do they find me? This raises a sort of a separation of church and state question, so I, I won't give my university phone number, but I tell you what, my phone number is in the phone book, and so you can always call us at home. Paul Calgian with a K-A-L, we're in the phone book, and so we invite you to call us if you're interested. You know, Paul, you just took the easy way out. You said just K-A-L. That's when the letters start getting difficult if you don't speak Armenian. K-A-L-D-J. I-A-N, just like all the rest of us say, Calgian. I also was wondering if you'd give us reference the Refuser Solidarity Network. How do people find out about that? Well, the web, just like with everything else. And I'm the one who's responsible for the website, and I've been remiss for not updating it since July 2006. Nevertheless, if you're interested in this portion of the peace movement in Israel, please check out www refusersolidarity.net. So it's one word, refusersolidarity.net.
And I'll, of course, have that posted on my website. I think you got an appointment after me. I have to let you get back to your job spreading this international connection through your work as a geographer. I tell you what the appointment's about is next spring I'm planning on working with our continuing education department on taking a food tour of Istanbul. So it'll be an eight-day tour at the end of May, beginning of June. If anybody's interested, then you can contact me at the university or at home or contact Gene Peterson in continuing education. And if they wanted to be part of that food tour and they wanted to contact you, how should they do that? You can contact me by emailing me at caljian, K-A-L-D-J-I-A-N, at uwec.edu. It's just my last name, caljian at uwec.edu. Or you can call Continuing Education. That's easy. Just give them a ring, and they'll know who to direct you toward. I love seeing the kind of full rainbow that you have in your life. It's a rainbow of international connection. Since I'm an international folk dancer, and since I've traveled and lived in a fair amount of the world, I just love seeing what you're doing, and I just hold you up in my prayers and, with great enthusiasm, endorse what you're doing. Thanks very much, Paul. Thank you, Mark. I really appreciate your support and the opportunity to spend this time with you. You've been listening to an interview with Paul Calgian of the University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire. He's a geography professor there, and he's a board member of the Refuser Solidarity Network. You can hear this program again via my website, northernspiritradio.org. On that website, you'll find other programs, and you'll find helpful links and information about each of the programs. The theme music for Spirit in Action is I Have No Hands But Yours by Carol Johnson. Thank you for listening. I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. You can email me at helpsmeet at usa.net. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. I have no higher call for you than Love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness. To love and serve your neighbor in joy and selflessness.